1: Hello, I'm Emma Kennedy. Welcome to Why, the podcast that serves the curious mind. In 1989, I was working in San Francisco, writing adverts for a new fangled thing called aromatherapy soap. One morning, I was woken by a strange, deep rumbling, a little like the noise when a plane is about to take off. The bed was shaking, and somewhere off in the apartment, native San Franciscans were yelling at me to get up and stand in a doorway. It was an earthquake. Everything went into slow motion my scramble to a safe place, the pictures rattling against the walls, the lamp that gently wriggled itself off a side table. For me, an earthquake was a novelty, but for people who live with them looming over their daily lives, they're a constant deadly threat. Turns out I was unbelievably lucky. Just over a month later, when I'd returned home to the UK, The Loma Prieta earthquake hit San Francisco with a magnitude of 6.9. It caused 63 deaths and nearly 4,000 people were injured. Houses in the next road to where I had been living collapsed. In the 1970s, it was hoped that science would be able to accurately predict earthquakes, but by the 90s, it became questionable as to whether it would ever be possible. In the last 20 years, earthquakes have caused the death of nearly a million people and have displaced hundreds of thousands more. They cause major economic disruption and the destruction of buildings and infrastructure. Earthquakes are capable of mass devastation. And yet, we don't seem to be very good at knowing when they're going to happen. So today on Why, we're asking, why can't we predict earthquakes?
0: These earthquakes are really nucleating down at, say, 15 kilometres below the surface. Um, We just don't know the conditions down there. We don't know the pressure. We don't know the stress conditions. We don't know what happened in the previous earthquake well enough.
1: Tim Wright is Professor of Satellite Geodesy and Director of Comet at the University of Leeds.
0: We say there's been earthquakes here in the past, there'll be earthquakes again in the future, and you try and base your probability on that. There's no physics in that. It's all about statistics. It's just about how often earthquakes have happened in the past.
1: So first things first, what defines an earthquake prediction?
0: Well, we can all make a prediction, right? I can say there will be an earthquake today somewhere on planet Earth. And I will be right. There will be many earthquakes a day on planet Earth. But it's not a particularly useful prediction. So I think what people generally mean when they're after a useful earthquake prediction is something that's quite specific. So where is the event going to be? So within a certain quite narrow geographic extent, how big is the event going to be? So what kind of earthquake magnitude, how much shaking will we expect? And then when, importantly, is it going to happen? So, And again, we'd expect this to be in a relatively narrow time window. So essentially, the important thing is we want those predictions, if they're going to be useful, they need to be better than my prediction that there'll be an earthquake today. completely useless prediction. I'll be 100% right. We need that prediction to be useful. It needs to be something that is unlikely to occur just by chance.
1: How many earthquakes are there around the planet on a daily basis, roughly? Or is that impossible to know?
0: The USGS records something like 2,000 or more earthquakes every day. So it depends on on the size of the earthquake. Of course, the smaller the earthquakes, the more there are. So there's something like 100,000 earthquakes a day that are between magnitude 3 and 4. And each time you go up the magnitude scale, you go down. So we have about 1% magnitude eight a year. We have one a month that's between seven and eight. So it's those kind of numbers. And really, for the ones that we care about, they're typically bigger than a magnitude six.
1: And what is statistical hypothesis testing?
0: Yeah, so this is where you would take a hypothesis. So you would say, I can predict earthquakes with this particular technique. So you would say, here's my hypothesis that you, importantly, you put in in place before the events happen you then go away and you look at how many times your hypothesis your prediction was met how many times it wasn't and you try and work out whether that's more likely than not whether whether that could be random or not and so you're kind of looking at If you keep rolling a dice, right, at some point you'll get, you know, you'll roll six sixes in a row, right? Yeah. But but that will still be within the realms of possibility. So you're trying to understand, you know, it's unlikely that you roll six sixes in a row. It'd be really unlikely to roll 60 sixes in a row. it's working out that relative probability of these things happening just by chance.
1: So every film I've ever seen that involves earthquakes or volcanoes. The scientists, who are inevitably played by Pierce Brosnan, bang on about swarms of small earthquakes, increased radon in water, unusual animal behaviour, and foreshocks to suggest that this is the big one is coming. Is Pierce Brosnan wrong?
0: Well, I think you know you might expect a scientist to say this. It's it's not a simple answer, right? Is he right or is he wrong? So that the kinds of phenomenon he's describing in those in those films, we'd call precursors, Precur- and and there are lots of precursors. So you mentioned small earthquakes that we sometimes call foreshocks and we talk about radon gas. We can sometimes think about animals behaving in strange ways. There are lots of others, the ground deforming, water temperature changing. We can think about effects in the ionosphere even of electromagnetic emissions from the rocks. So all of these things we call precursors and lots of them do occur for some earthquakes. Um, Now the challenge is knowing when those phenomenon when they do occur knowing whether they're a precursor and that they're going to lead on to something bigger like a big earthquake and they're not just a random behavior you know if you take your animals you know your, your pets sometimes just behave weirdly right so if every time your pet behaved weirdly there was a very large earthquake we would be pretty excited about that I, and we'd I'd be, probably
1: be a millionaire you,
0: Exactly. Yes, but um, but actually, what tends to happen is the reverse: is that after an earthquake happens, people look back and they say, "Oh, look, there were these these phenomena happened mm-hmm. before the earthquake." And um, I think that there's a famous Caltech seismologist um, called Hiro Kanamori, and he I think it was him who came up with the phrase. He said, "It's hard to predict earthquakes, especially before they happen," and <laughs> we would really like to be able to predict them. Beforehand, right? It's much, much easier to look back. You know, you go back to Loma Prieta, the earthquake you mentioned at the beginning, and actually there was a quite a well documented electromagnetic signal that was detected after the earthquake. People went back and looked and saw that there was this electromagnetic anomaly, which was probably a precursor of the earthquake, but we didn't know that at the time. And we ne- importantly, we need to know how often these things happen without them being followed by a large earthquake.
1: I've seen earthquake predicting be described as an immature science. And is that basically a way of saying that seismology hasn't really had any major advancements?
0: No, we've actually made huge advancements in, in seismology in terms of understanding what happens mm. in earthquakes. I think it's just that what we would need to do if earthquake prediction was indeed possible, and it, and it may be possible, but the kinds of things we think are probably happening that we need to measure are just really, really hard to measure. And actually, a lot of this processes may be chaotic, they may be in this, you know, butterfly flapping their wings category of activity, whereby, you know, to start a big earthquake probably often you're nucleating with smaller earthquakes and you might have a few of these smaller earthquakes and some of those smaller earthquakes grow into very very large earthquakes and it's just extremely hard to know which ones uh, are going to grow. Um, An analogy would be if you imagine a big pile of sand and you're, you're dropping one grain of sand at a time onto the top of this pile. And sometimes just you'll get a little flow of sand down the side and then on other occasions there'll be a big collapse and a very large sector of that pile of sand will fall down. That's the way I kind of think about these earthquakes. So if you could measure all those individual grains of sand very precisely and all the exact conditions on them, then maybe you would be able to make that prediction.
1: For those who don't know, what is actually happening in the lead up and then during an earthquake.
0: Earthquakes are phenomena that happen on faults. So faults are planar interfaces between two bits of rock within the earth, two parts of the rock sticking next to each other. And you'll have relative movement on either side of those faults. So we think about the San Andreas fault and the motion of the Pacific with respect to North America. It's about four centimeters on every year on average. That's gradually building up stresses on that fault. It's a bit like, I guess, you could think about stretching an elastic band. You're stretching and stretching and stretching.
1: What causes those stresses though? What What is actually happening underneath the Earth's surface to cause those faults to move in the first place?
0: Yeah, so they're really the, the ultimate cause is because the earth is hot and we get plate tectonics happening on the earth's surface the plates are a big convection cells, so you've got hot material rises cold material sinks and those those movements of those plates cause stresses now In the oceans, those stresses happen in quite narrow zones. In the continents, we can get quite broad areas like the Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau, where you have earthquakes throughout that, really big, broad, deforming areas. So those stresses ultimately are coming from that movement of the Earth.
1: So I suppose the thing that comes to my mind instantly is that we know that continents are shifting and we know that that shifting causes seismic strain. So, if you know where those points of tension are around the globe and you know the rate at which those plates are moving, why doesn't that make predictions easier?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. And so, this was a, a, it's a hypothesis actually that was developed by several people, but kind of popularized by um, Harry Fielding Reed in 1910, called the kind of elastic rebound hypothesis. And so, he made measurements in California, around the San Andreas Fault, following the big um, San Francisco earthquake. And he kind of realised that exactly this process you described, that the the relative plate motion was building up elastic energy, we are actually putting energy into the crust by those, they didn't know about plate tectonics at that time, so he didn't have a theory for why the motion was happening, but he said there's motion happening, that's building up these elastic stresses and then that's released in the earthquake. So. The idea then was if you could measure the rate of that movement, and as you say, you know where these things are, you should be able to say when the next earthquake is going to be. Now the problem is you don't know how big the next earthquake is going to be. The amount of movement you get in an earthquake depends on the size of the earthquake. So a magnitude 7 earthquake might have a couple of meters of slip. If we looked at the big earthquake in Japan that happened in 2011, the Tohoku earthquake, there were measurements on the seafloor there of the ground movement and the ground moved by 50 meters in, the, in that earthquake. Really huge amounts. So, if you're trying to say when is the next earthquake going to be, you really need to know how much movement am I going to need to have to cause an earthquake. But of course, that depends on how big your earthquake is going to be. So, that's one of many problems. The other problem is these earthquakes are really nucleating down at say 15 kilometers below the surface, typically for a big earthquake on a fault like the San Andreas Fault. Um, We just don't know the conditions down there. We don't know the pressure. We don't know the, the stress conditions. We don't know what happened in the previous earthquake well enough. We don't know what the fluid pressures are like down there. Just for context, the deepest hole that we've drilled on the entire planet is only just over 12 kilometers below the surface, which is nothing. I mean, if you, if you think of the Earth, imagine it like an egg, right? So the, the, the shell on the egg, if we scaled it up to the size of the Earth, would be about 60 kilometres thick. And that's roughly, that's a little bit bigger than the average crust on the Earth, but it's a reasonable analogy. And so we've only drilled in you know, we've scratched the surface of that egg, really. We're really are trying to make inferences about what's going on beneath us based on measurements we're making at the surface and some tiny little scratches that we've made.
1: So basically, in, in that egg analogy, none of the movement is actually happening within that shell. It's all happening underneath the shell. So Pierce Brosnan needs a bigger drill.
0: Here's- Definitely needs a bigger drill. Um <laughs> the, the, you can imagine the shell being I'm probably stretching this analogy too far, but you can imagine the the eggshell being broken up into sections that would be yeah. the plates. And so there's big relative movements of those sections. So there is movement across the plate boundaries. So the cracks in the eggshell, if you like. But actually the continuous a lot of what's causing that is ha- is being driven by what's below, what's happening at deeper depths, where we have no direct measurements.
1: How does science go about assessing whether something is an ongoing hazard?
0: Yeah, so I think it's becoming more sophisticated in earthquake hazard work. So I think the initial probability models, these these hazard models, were basically based on what had happened in the past. So we just look at previous earthquakes we say there's been earthquakes here in the past. There'll be earthquakes again in the future, and you try and base your probability on that. There's no physics in that. There's no real understanding of these plate motions I've talked about, the build-up of stresses. It's all about statistics. It's just about how often earthquakes have happened in the past. Now the problem with that is that earthquakes are pretty rare. So even on some of the faster slipping faults like this. San Andreas Fault or the North Anatolian Fault in Turkey, which is a very active fault system, these faults may only have an earthquake every couple of hundred years. And we've only really had good measurements of of earthquakes, really good measurements for kind of 40 or 50 years. We've got some seismic measurements back for 100 years. And if we're in, in slow deforming areas like, let's say, in Mongolia, maybe some of these earthquakes only happen once every 1,000 or 10,000 years on, on faults. So just looking at when previous earthquakes happen isn't enough. So this is where combining these other technologies is really useful. So we have I have colleagues who do this mapping of faults, and so they're looking at the signatures in the landscape of previous earthquake faults so when the fault breaks the landscape sometimes you get these fantastic structures in the in the fields called mole tracks. it looks like a, a giant mole has run through the field because the ground has been torn up by the earthquake fault rupture and those can survive in places like Mongolia for thousands of years so that's really useful information and then we're also then trying to look at this ground deformation and that movement of the ground should happen before most for most earthquakes. There's probably some earthquakes where it doesn't happen beforehand, but for most earthquakes, we're expecting them to be caused by these slow movements of the tectonic plates. And so if we can map that movement, we should be able to say something about how often earthquakes will occur and yeah, how damaging they'll be and how and where those earthquakes will be.
1: There was an earthquake in New Zealand in 2016, and it was quite unusual, wasn't it?
0: That's right, this is an earthquake on the South Island of New Zealand called the Kaikoura earthquake. Lots of interesting things about that earthquake, but one of them was it was way more complex than we we were expecting for an earthquake. So earthquakes are continuing to surprise us. So we learn every time there's an earthquake. And what we learned from what seemed to happen in that earthquake was rather than a single fault structure failing in a relatively small earthquake, a whole bunch of faults linked up in somewhat unexpected ways and together they made a much, much larger earthquake. I
1: suppose even though, as you say, it's almost well, it is, it's impossible to predict uh, when an earthquake is going to happen. In 2009 in the Aquila earthquake the scientists got into trouble for failing to predict that there was going to be that earthquake and they were convicted of, of manslaughter and I, I know that they've subsequently been cleared of that but I think they, they were accused of, because they had given undue assurance to the populace. But false alarms, they also come at a cost, don't they?
0: That's right. If you continually go around telling people there's going to be an event and then there isn't, then you know, you, there's obviously a cost. Each time you evacuate a town, there's lost economic activity and then there's lost confidence in those predictions. So when if you cry wolf, too often, eventually, people are not going to respond to that. The L'Aquila examples are a really fascinating story and really tragic, of course. So what was happening there was there was a, a local guy, not a trained scientist or a practicing scientist, but he'd been going around measuring. He'd been doing it basically as a hobby. He was going around thinking he could do something. And then he'd seen some anomalies. He'd made some predictions, and people were getting a bit scared. So the government put together a commission of scientists who came in. It was was a group of scientists, about six scientists, and one civil defence guy, specialist, who they went in, they had a meeting behind closed doors. But then after the meeting, they got stopped by some journalists. And the civil defence guy, he basically said something that wasn't really right. He said, there's been a whole load of small earthquakes as well. But what he said was, oh, all these small earthquakes, they're kind of releasing energy, and so it's all a good thing. It's not a problem. Whereas what he should have said was that these small earthquakes are probably nothing to worry about, but some small earthquakes are foreshocks to bigger earthquakes, and you live in the most dangerous part of Italy, so you should always be prepared um, and make sure your homes are safe from earthquakes. Instead, one of the journalists then said something like, oh, should we all go home and have a nice glass of wine? And he he agreed with this statement. And he said, yes, you should have a nice glass of Monte Pulciano. And and so, you know, really bad science communication. Mm. But then at 3.30 the next morning, there was this much larger earthquake, at 6.3. A lot of people were killed, about 208 people, I think, lost their lives, sadly, in that event, because the buildings in that area just not prepared for it. And the court case was based around the fact that that advice was seen to falsely reassure people.
1: And again, it it all hinges on the fact that it's not possible to predict earthquakes.
0: That's right. It it seems to be impossible. I always like to say at the moment, maybe one day it will be possible. People have managed to predict earthquakes in the lab, this is a, an interesting, relatively recent thing that people have done. You take some blocks of rock and you slide them past each other in the lab and you listen to them with acoustic sensors instead of seismometers. And with machine learning, people have managed to do quite reliable forecasts, um, short term predictions you know, on these lab earthquakes. But I think the prospect of that being scaled up to the real world is still really slim, really unlikely, I think.
1: So the Earth's crust, the eggshell, is just too thick to allow us to make proper forecasts about earthquakes, but there must be hope on the horizon, surely. So what needs to happen for longer-term predictions to become scientifically reliable?
0: So I think these long-term, I'm going to use forecasts rather than the P word, but these long-term forecasts, for them to be more reliable, I think we need better data. We do need better models. We need ways of bringing these things together we also need better ways of making sure those are implemented so there's a social science problem here as well as a physical science problem
1: where do you get the data from
0: yeah so there's lots of different kinds of data so the technique that i use in particular comes from satellite systems so we use satellite radars that are constantly orbiting around the earth so we use in particular at the moment a system a european system called sentinel one part of the uh, one of the eu copernicus programs we're really excited that we the uk joined back into that program a, a few months ago so it's we're part of that properly again so that system acquires data every time it goes over all the tectonic belts so we we're What it does, it shines radar energy from the satellite. So these are, it's basically like light, light, but it's a longer wavelength. So the wavelength of these radar waves are about six centimeters. Um, So we're sending these, these waves down, measuring the reflections back up at the satellite. Satellite's up at 700 kilometers and then we can combine all of those images, and it still kind of blows my mind a bit that we can do this, but by combining all those images, we can make very, very precise measurements of how the ground's moving down to the kind of nearest few millimetres. What? Yeah, and and down to, down to a few millimetres or, or even a millimetre in some cases, so really remarkable rates.
1: So you can basically look anywhere in the world and you can say, okay, this ground here has moved by Three millimeters.
0: Yeah, so we can do that with this to a certain extent. I say in many parts of the world, it doesn't work everywhere. We also use a technique, you know, you have your GPS receivers in your car or your phone that tell you Mm. where you are. We just kind of rely on those now. But a few decades ago, scientists basically hacked the signals from those GPS satellites. And again, the one you have in your phone might give you a position to five or 10 meters, but we can get again millimeter level. Precision by basically hacking the signals that they send out. So we have receivers that constantly listen to all the signals from the GPS satellites, from the European Galileo system, there's a Russian system. You can listen to all of those signals. And for that individual point, again, you can track where it is to a millimeter precision. And then we combine that with the data from these radar satellites where we don't need instruments on the ground. And that kind of helps us map the spatial distribution of the movement over a much larger area so we're really seeing plates moving it's it's really incredible actually in real time yeah and you know these are things that are moving you know these analogies are useful i think but the plates are moving at about the speed your fingernails are, are growing so you know every time you cut your fingernails you can think of the us moving a bit further away from us by about that same amount yeah
1: is there any room for preventative measures to be taken like is there an argument like can you somehow release that pressure that is building up underneath the Earth's surface, or is it happening too deep down
0: yeah that's a great question there's a facetious answer to that which is if you thought you could who's going to ensure you in case it goes wrong <laughs> um, so but I think the realistic answer is it's unlikely to be something that we know how to to do really you'd have to i don't know somehow lubricate the whole fault plane down from the surface down to 15 kilometers depth and just the scale of these things would be hard if Mm. the turkey earthquake for example the length of that earthquake rupture was about 300 kilometers so on a uk scale that's the length of the m1 so can you imagine devastation all the way from london to leeds from one earthquake just an absolutely mind-blowing scale of devastation so to put in mitigation measures to release those stresses on faults, I think would be quite impractical
1: something I always think about with the whole shifting of the continents is is where they 're all going to end up what 's going to split <laughs> apart what 's going to collide where 's the u k going to end up for instance
0: yeah, these are great questions I think on a bigger time scale if you look at kind of reconstructions and there 's some really nice reconstructions now over the last hundreds of millions of years of of plate motions and what you see is continents coming together and then splitting apart and coming together and splitting apart and we're in a kind of splitting apart phase at the moment but they'll then come you know the pacific is getting smaller and so that and the atlantic's getting bigger so there'll be a collision again there there are some models where you can roll the clock into the future and and see these things.
1: Uh, What about the UK? Where are we going to be?
0: This is a good question. So the UK in a global reference frame, I think is moving kind of eastwards at the moment. So we're, we're within a plate interior. So, you know, we are, you know, despite the politics, we are part of the Eurasian plates and we're very much connected tectonically to Europe, which is good. And so all of Eurasia is kind of moving kind of, eastwards largely Africa's colliding with us but we're in a pretty stable interior
1: so eventually we'll be back in Europe
0: yeah eventually yes yeah. So we'll certainly be where <laughs> Europe hope. was but Europe might have moved on
1: there's hope Tim there's hope mm-hmm. Forecasting is improving, but it's perhaps not the most important lesson we've learned today. We'll never know precisely when an earthquake is coming, but what we can do is embrace the social science and ensure that communities and buildings are best prepared for the inevitable. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor Tim Wright.
0: That's okay. Great. Thank you for your time.
1: We'll be back with more fascinating science and weird facts soon, Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Emma Kennedy asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Emma Kennedy. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why? It's a Podmasters production.